Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For much too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality in leadership and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We absolutely must change this, and I hope that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible in a way that works for you and for your families, so you can make the decisions that make our world and our organizations better places. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about giving parents the support and space to progress to senior leadership in a way that works for them and their families. We have lots of free events and also lots of resources on leadersplus.org where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave or securing a promotion as a working parent or thriving or surviving depending how you look at it as a dual career couple. We also have an award-winning global fellowship program for working parents who have big dreams for their careers but don't want to sacrifice everything for it. You will join a tight-knit, supportive group of people. You'll get space to think about what you want for your life, for your family, for your career, a senior leader mentor and a lot of targeted support in order to get you where you would like to be. And you can find all that on leadersplus.org forward slash fellowship for the details. The next application deadline is on 20th March 2024 and you can download the brochure on leadersplus.org. Today's episode is with Dan Astarita. We discuss how to balance a demanding career with IVF, what he learned about combining leadership career with young children, and how he leads an inclusive manufacturing business. Given we are recording this next to his factory, there's a fair bit of background noise. Thank you for bearing with us. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Dan, to the podcast. Great to have a chance to chat with you. Let's start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work, and who is in your family. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So my name is Dan Astorita. I'm the Managing Director of Kesler's London. We're a design and manufacturing business based in London, as the name suggests. I have a wife of seven years, and I have two small children. One is three, is my boy, and my daughter is two. Wonderful. And one question we ask all our guests is, what one thing do you used to assume about combining a big career with young children that you don't subscribe to anymore? That you can't do it. Growing up, I had a mum and my mum was amazing, but she gave up her career to have me. She was one of the youngest owners of a bakery, a national chain of bakeries. And she stopped working to be a full-time mum to me while my, my dad went out to work. And on the flip side of that, I had a stepmom. So my dad remarried when I was very young. And she was a very, very successful lady in business. And she decided not to have children um, for the reason that she didn't think she could continue her career. So we're talking 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And I guess I my perception was that that was the norm. And I think possibly then it was a bit more of the reality. I think fast forward 35, 40 years, you absolutely can do it. You know, It's difficult and it's got various challenges, but you absolutely can do it. And businesses like mine have to find ways of embracing it because it's to, always to their benefit. 
Mm. And you just, before we came on there, told me your wife is a head teacher and used to work in education. And I think there's, during term time, it is just, it is definitely not a nine to five job. So you are in a household where both of you are pretty busy most of the time. Yeah, she's a head teacher at a um, special needs school and I'm always in awe of what she does. Like, I couldn't do it. I make no bones about that. Definitely couldn't do it. Some days I'll have a bad day at work and I'll say that, you know, my, my design wasn't right or my job didn't go out on time and she'll tell me about her day. And mine always pales into insignificance to what she does. I think I have absolute admiration for anybody that's working that frontline education and dealing with children and the ch- children's challenges that exist today because there are there are many of them and she has my always has my sympathy. Mm. And how do you make it work practically being both in big jobs just physically do you have a lot of people in your position will have three or four nannies and obviously not everyone is lucky enough to have that or they might not want that but what's your practical solution to the craziness of just getting children out of the house? Well so I mean we don't have nannies we went for a long journey to have my boy he was an IVF baby and so we're really grateful of that. And above everything else, we're parents. So my wife's slightly more time pressured with arrival at school. because She has to be there for when children arrive. I can be slightly more flexible. So I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I'll get myself ready. My children arise, you know, if I'm lucky, seven o'clock, but normally 6.30 and we will have chaos, the three of us. But my wife will take the time to do her, her routine in the morning and I will take responsibility for dressing children and brushing teeth and, you know, getting them ready and I'll do nursery drop-off. So I'm one of the few dads at nurseries who does the drop-offs. All the mums smile at me and make sure I'm okay and help me sometimes when I'm trying to carry two of them if one of them's having a bad day. But we get them to nursery. They're in full-time nursery five days a week. But my wife, she will invariably do pick up unless there's been an issue at work. So she'll pick them up around five o'clock because she can leave work slightly earlier because the children have gone home. And I try to leave work every day by no later than 5.15, because that allows me to be home for six. So I get an hour. So in the evenings, we have this hour. The TV's never on. We either do a game or we'll do phonics at the moment. We're learning our we're learning our alphabets. You're learning the phonics alphabet. I am. That's never probably the best Maisie Mountain is the one we're on today. So um, Maisie Mountain is today's letter. Because we're working so hard and the time during the week is so intense because we get up in the morning and it's rush 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 we have, try and have that hour screen free if you like and do something together like you know me and my boy will wrestle or we'll play with a dog or something physical and then it's bath and bed and we do that together most nights and then sometimes and quite often what me and my wife will go back to work we'll get the laptop out and do an hour's work because we've either had to leave work early or we've got to work late but we always feel better for having that hour with the kid with the children in the evening because we feel like we've done the right thing by them and by us i think you remember why you're working you know, and I think that's important. You know, we're going to work to provide for our families and provide a hopefully a, a nice lifestyle for our for our children that we work so hard to have in the first place. That if we didn't do that, I kind of go, well, what was the point, right? Like, and so that's the routine. And then weekends is chaos. So last weekend was three children's birthday parties. So I took my boy, and my wife took my my daughter to one, and then on a Sunday they had a combined one. And so my life is children's birthday parties at the moment. It's unbelievable how much of a social life they have. And yeah, I feel slightly envious of my children's social life. It's really unbelievable. (laughs) I'm interested just a bit to unpick your IVF story and what you've learned through that. And I was wondering whether you could paint a picture for me of 
one of the moments where you noticed that it was going to be different than how you planned and how you envisaged your fatherhood journey to be? So I guess we got married and we kind of had this, you know, really lovely wedding and we never really thought about having any difficulties to have children. And I don't think you do until you do have these challenges. We went through a series of tests and a series of doctor's appointments and we sat down with an amazing doctor and he basically laid it out very plainly that this is going to be a real challenge for you to do naturally, almost impossible. And this is the journey it's going to go on. And I'm quite a pragmatic person, so I'm quite a solution-focused person. So I looked at the the timelines and the cost and then I go, right, okay, we can solve that, we can do that, we can do this. And I turned to him, I think it was my right, and my wife was sobbing and she was in floods of tears. And that's when it hit me because actually – it wasn't a thing for me. It was just something we were going to have this, a journey we were going to have to go on. It was another hurdle. And I looked to my right and the emotional turmoil that being told it wasn't going to happen naturally that it had on my wife. And it may not never happen. You know, IVF is not a given. And I think it then hit me that I, this was something I wasn't in control of. I like to be in control. I like to solve problems. I like to tackle things head on. And there was nothing I could do that was going to take this pain away from her. And I think that was quite startling. And we, I remember leaving the hospital and we went for a coffee and we always sat in silence because I didn't know what to say and she didn't want to talk to me. And, and we just sort of sat there going, ah. And that was a, probably the start of a really difficult, difficult journey. IVF is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yeah, and that was day one, really. Mm. And looking back at this really, really difficult journey, is there anything that you wish you knew or you wish you could rely on? In hindsight. Yeah, so I think the chemical reaction that my wife was having to wanting to have this baby, it kind of set off this, you know, once we, she decided she wanted to have a baby, there was this maternal instinct that kind of kicked in that she had to be a mum. And I guess the thing that I found the hardest was the amount of anxiety, the amount of issues that we were going to have that other people weren't having and how that would resonate with my wife, the amount of turmoil she would go through. So we would go to weddings or christenings or birthday parties and there'd be loads of children there, you know, children, amazing, let's play games. And she couldn't engage with children for a long time, actually. She really struggled to be a happy auntie or a happy friend of a child because actually she couldn't have that. I didn't quite get that at the time. And I think it was only later on when we decided to go one more time and if it didn't work we were going to have to stop and the conversation that we had is we're going to have to stop and she was like well I don't know if I can handle that I'm like, well, we're going to have to stop how serious this was and how damaging it could have been to our overall relationship had we not been as lucky as we were on our fifth attempt two days before COVID lockdown we call him our miracle baby because he genuinely feels like that yeah so I guess the unexpected is the amount of emotional turmoil that my wife went through and me as a passive observer having no control over how she was feeling and I couldn't fix it I couldn't put my arm around her I couldn't pay my way out of it you just have to kind of go along with the journey and I think you know since then I've actually we, you go into support groups and they put you into groups of people going through the same thing you find a lot of men kind of feel this you know slightly passive to the whole process because they don't really know this men are we want to solve your problems. We want to take your pain away. And actually you can't. So you become much more emotionally in tune to how, what your wife's going through. And I think that's probably overall held me in good stead because I think we're much more on the same wavelength now than we've ever have been. Mm. And I can imagine that this type of experience can make or break 
some couples because the way you describe it is incredibly intense. I don't know if I've ever said this out loud before. I don't know what would have happened if time number five had not worked because I was absolutely stoic in my decision that we were not going to go again. We'd spent a horrible amount of money. We'd spent the middle part of our 30s when we should have been going on big holidays, paying for this thing, being unhappy, you know, Every three months, we'd go for a cycle and it wouldn't work. And it went on for such a long time. I checked out. I didn't want to go again for the fifth time. And we had the conversation. I was like, okay, we'll go again. But if it doesn't work, I'm not going again. And I don't think, had it not worked, she would have been in the same place as me. And I don't know what that would have done to us. So he is our miracle boy for various reasons. And we owe him a lot. And the doctors Mm. a lot as well. Thank you for being so open and honest. And we are recording this. I don't know if it's your warehouse or your design studio. So, and I can see a mannequin in the background on your screen. This is obviously it's audio only, so the listeners will just have to imagine that I'm speaking to someone extremely, you know, who knows all the things about fashion and so on. But I imagine it's quite a fast industry. It's quite, and you're the person who the box stops with. And I'm just interested, both with you and your wife you had jobs where the box stops with you. How do you square that in an environment where you have to go to countless appointments, where you have to, there's something more important than work that is going on. Um, Your clients, your suppliers want things from you. Can you be a CEO and go on an IVF journey? I'll be honest, I wasn't a CEO when I went on the IVF journey. And I can talk about that slightly if you'd like me to in the journey. I went on to become a CEO and how having children helped me to become a CEO, I feel. But my wife was a head teacher as we were going through the IVF journey. And I think it can both help and hinder. I mean, and what I mean by that is you are the boss. So you can afford yourself a little bit more freedom and a little bit more because you know you're going to go home and put the hours in a home and make up your time. Whereas if you're in a middle management job or, you know, doing a team leader's role or a shop floor role, you're not going to be afforded that amount of luxury time away from work or it's certainly going to be very hard to be. Some people won't even ask for it or you'll use your holiday for it. So there is a benefit to doing it. But the downside is you feel an enormous sense of guilt. You know, I watched my wife feel absolute guilt that she wasn't able to be at every meeting or be emotionally connected to every child that was coming into the room because she was going through this journey. I was a sales director at the time and... I was able to mold my appointments and my meetings and my conversations around the IVF journey. So it was much easier for me than it was for her. And she would feel huge amount of guilt and she would get the laptop open weekends, Saturdays, Sundays, and she'd do end up doing like two or three times more hours than we ever went for an appointment because of that sense of guilt. And she was really conscious of what that would, because yes, she's a head teacher, but she's still got bosses. She's got governors and she's got people that she's still responsible to. And She's so meticulous in what she does and she's she's incredible at what she does. And and she'd only been a newly appointed head teacher, I think for maybe 12, 18 months. And she absolutely had a, a fear that she was going to have to step back or go backwards. So she almost doubled down in the amount of time she was putting in. And I watched that and I felt sorry for her because it was a lot easier for me to manage my calendar and manage my appointments around. I was a pretty good salesperson. So my boss was sort of didn't want to lose me. So he would accept my timings where I think it was harder for her for sure it's interesting though about the decision it sounds like you were quite open about going through IVF with your boss and even with your clients were you always sure that you were going to be that open or in your mind were you thinking "Mm, actually maybe I'll just keep it secret and pretend I'm going to coffees with clients instead 
in terms of going to appointments or going for a coffee with a client, I was always very honest about going for appointments. And I think probably the, the initial appointments would have been going for a doctor's appointment rather than an IVF appointment. But because of you kind of go for an appointment and, and then you go for another 10 appointments, and even after that, you then have you are, it either works or it doesn't work. So sometimes you need to take a day with your wife to comfort her. And in our case, unfortunately, on round four, we had a miscarriage. And that took more than a day. That took a couple of weeks to really get over. I think coming at it from a point of view of honesty was the right thing to do. I also think, I, you know, I think if there is a stigma around it, that's a problem with the workplace. That isn't a problem with, with the individual. You know, it's so prevalent. I've, since going through it and being part of groups and my, and my friends have got to an age now, I'm in a WhatsApp group and three out of seven of us are going through IVF. And you're going down 40% of people. Because I think people are having children older now and therefore this IVF journey or, or this, this challenge to get pregnancy is much more prevalent than it's ever been before. And, you know, I'm certainly wasn't never ashamed of it or wanted to hide it. So no, I, I was very open about it. Mm, amazing. Let's talk about your journey of becoming a CEO. You mentioned that you think your children influenced that. How so? So I'm the managing director CEO of a business that's been around for 130 years, one of the oldest design companies in Europe. And what happened was I was working in the business as a sales director and it went into administration. So it went out of business and I made the decision to buy it out of administration and start it again because I'd watched it go wrong being part of it and look at others make bad decisions and I felt that I could do it better so I made a quite a bold decision to go and buy it to restart it and to try and almost became the MD because I bought it you know that was the only real you know it wasn't a job I ever really wanted but by buying it de facto was you become the boss and I looked at how other people had done it badly and I wanted to do something for my children that meant I was going to work to create something for them because it would have been easy for me to go and do another sales job and a reasonable living and have a nice lifestyle. But I wanted to do something that gave me the bedrock and the foundation to be able to hopefully in the future propel them into something with a better future for them. I wanted them to look at me They'll look at their mum and be incredibly proud. She's a head teacher. She was a young head teacher. And, and I kind of wanted to replicate that for myself. I wanted to, them to be proud of me. And so I kind of done it as a bit of a way of demonstrating that, you know, take a chance and be brave and have the courage of your convictions and do things the right way, though. You know, you have the courage of your convictions, but stay true to your values and practice what you preach. You know, they're too young to understand it now, but hopefully in a couple of years time, they'll look at it as a bold move. And, you know, when they're getting hopefully nice birthday presents, they'll appreciate it, hopefully. <laughs> I believe, and I'm totally guilty of this being Swiss and all, but I do think we don't talk enough about money, so I want to ask you about money, but you can also say you don't want to answer, and then we just edit it out and pretend it never happened. But I'm interested, how did you have enough money to buy a company that has 100 employees? Oh, so when it went into administration, all the employees had been made redundant. So the, I talk about IVF being one of the worst journeys of my life the worst day of my life was actually I had to make 180 people redundant from the old business so there's 100 people now but there was 180 they all lost their jobs and I stood up in front of them and had to give that speech and announce them and watch them leave so I bought it out of administration so the money cost of it was negligible right and I had an investor come on board with me who I paid out actually last month so I now own the 
I paid him off. But I took on outside investors, but the money, it wasn't, you know, millions and millions of pounds. It was certainly, you know, it was tens of thousands because the business had gone bust. So I basically bought the assets and the name of the business without any people. And slowly over the last two years, we've gone from having me and one other person in an office back up to 100 people. So it's been a slow journey to get back to that point. That's incredibly impressive. It seems like such a risky thing to do. Again, again, me not knowing anything about your industry or how to buy companies in general. But many people, when they have very young children, are quite risk averse and probably wouldn't take the decision that you've taken. You could have gone to quite a safe sales job by the sound of it. You were an experienced salesperson. You would have earned enough money to cover yourself, I'm sure. What was the trigger point? What told you got feeling that yes, you are going to take that risk? I think there was two things. I think I was in the business as it was going wrong. And I was talking to others, owners and the other directors about what we should do differently. So emotionally invested in how we should do it differently. And it wasn't resonating. They weren't listening. They didn't believe me. They didn't think I was right. So there was a part of me that was so stoic in wanting to prove other people wrong that you could make this business work if you did X, Y, and Z. It was almost like a. I had to prove a point to other people. I'm going to take a chance. But the other thing is, standing up in front of 180 people, a lot of these people have been there for 20, 30 years and had no idea the business was in trouble. I felt like a duty of care to them that if there was something to save, it was worth me having a go at it because I watched these 180 people, many of whom were in tears, many of whom were worried about paying their bills who had worked there for 20, 30 years, who only who didn't have another trade. Now, we exist in London in an industry that doesn't exist in London. So they weren't going to go into doing their skill in a competitor. They would have ended up doing something completely different, maybe for less money. All those skills would have gone to waste. So I felt like I owed it to the people that were let down by others to give them an opportunity to use their skills and the knowledge that they'd amassed over 20, 30 years and put them back into practice. And where did I get my confidence from? I guess I'm quite an honest person. You know, I like to talk to people. So I rung up, I spoke to customers, I spoke to all my stakeholders, I spoke to landlords and the bank and I said, I want to do this. The business is in trouble. I want to try and do this. What do you think? And almost, not almost, without exception, everyone said, you should do it. You know what you're doing. You should absolutely do it. So my confidence came from external influences, actually. And my wife, my wife was incredibly supportive, you know, she said, if it doesn't work, you know, she earns enough money that we can pay the mortgage and you'll just have to look after the children. We'll be okay for a couple of months. And she encouraged me to do it as well. And I think I owe her a big debt, but customers, the bank, the landlords, everybody was sort of encouraging me. And I kind of felt like if I didn't do it, when everyone's telling you to do it, you, you really are, you're chickening out there a little bit. You've kind of got to take a chance. I've actually got the words, take a chance, tattooed on my back from a stag do in Vegas. Um, so it, it would be slightly cowardly to have those words tattooed and then not actually take a big, you know, this, this opportunity as it came along because they don't come along very often in life. And, you know, I could always go and sell something else if it didn't work six months later, but I owed it to the staff and I owed it to my family. Mm. And just listening you speak, you come across as someone reasonably confident and someone who seems to be doing well with stress, I'm imagining taking a business that is failing and turning it around completely within two years is a relatively stressful thing to do. Is my assumption that you are not too faced by stress correct? And if yes, how? 
I come from a sales background. I am quite a confident person. I do believe in practicing what you preach, going out and doing something. And if it doesn't right, as long as you've got good intentions, you know, you're not trying to run up huge bills with you with your creditors, or you're not trying to do anything that's not part of your moral compass and moral code then if it goes wrong it goes wrong right you had the best intentions and people are adults and they've got freedom of choice these people had a choice whether they came back and took a chance to come back that nobody was forced to so although i had a duty of responsibility for them i felt like they had the freedom of that choice the honest truth is the stress in the build-up to the administration and the demise of the business was much worse because that felt bigger it felt like it had been, you know, it felt like it was going wrong and it was out of control and we couldn't slow, we, you know, a steam train that we couldn't stop. Whereas the startup felt more controlled. We would do this and if that goes well, we'll do the next step and we could control the pace of it. So I do do with stress well. I am supported by a wonderful management team who are my, I say my balance. I am a confident risk-taking individual who will go and do x y and z and the counter to that is to put people around you that can almost do the opposite they can do the detail they can do the meticulous planning and if you haven't got that balance then i think it becomes more stressful because i've got these checks and balances in place so if i say x and my senior management team go you're being stupid don't do that then i know i'm being stupid more often than not, they'll go, yeah, you're right, but we need to do this, this, and this first. So I think they give me a lot of my confidence because they back a lot of my decisions, but they help me do them right, if that makes any sense. So I think having the right people around you is really important. But yeah, I am naturally quite confident, which has its downfalls. You know, sometimes you can be too confident and cocky and you can do too many things that jeopardize too. Yeah, I think I've kind of, I've been on a bit of a journey, you know, and my confidence is slightly more balance than it used to be and i imagine when you're building a business again almost from scratch it's all encompassing and your brain works over time you have lots of ideas while you're cooking dinner and i was wondering whether you experienced that and if yes how you manage and still be present with the kids because that's something a lot of listeners find challenging that your brain keeps whirring after you left work and even though you're on the floor you're trying to play with your kids or you're cleaning up the mess that they've yeah. made, um, yeah. you are, you know, it's really hard to be present with them in that situation. Is that something you've experienced or not so much? I think I will be nothing but brutally honest with you and say it isn't something I personally experience. And I don't know whether that's because of the IVF journey and the amount of gratitude I have. I don't know whether it's just the way that I'm wired, but I am very much of the moment. Now, you're absolutely right. My mind goes 100 miles an hour and I am thinking about what's the next activity, what's the next thing to do at work a lot of the time. But I love to have fun. So I love to go play rugby. I love to spend time with my children. I love to do whatever it is. And I'm a much better dad. I'm a much better leader when I've had my fix of fun. And my children give me a huge sense of pride, but they're now of an age where I can really enjoy them as well. So my daughter's hilarious. My son's a proper little lad who wants to rough house and play and jump and build dens, or we built a huge marble run, or we're now doing scale electric. And I'm a big kid. I love to have fun. And that distraction makes me better. So we don't look at the phones. We don't have the screen time. And most things will wait. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea in two hours' time. I think if you 
get caught up in being a 24-7 leader and it's all about the business, actually you don't have the distraction, you don't know why you're doing it and the good ideas stop coming because actually it just becomes monotonous and mundane and you're just do, living, for the, living for work. I went to India last year for six days with some friends for one of my friend's 40th birthdays and again, turned the phone off spent some apart from talking to the family but from turned the work phone off and had this absolute distraction this amazing cultural experience and i came back refreshed revitalized missed my children like crazy i can genuinely see in the weeks that precede that i'm a better leader for it because i'm more engaged i'm more receptive to people i'm more willing to listen to ideas rather than push my own ideas and i think having that shut off point where you completely disengage with work and I know it's hard and it's probably harder for my wife being a head teacher and I'm lucky because I've got a management team and I'm not suggesting it's easy for a second but I find myself better on the other side of it for doing it mm, I agree I don't actually tell them what I'm, I still hide that in the summer I usually take a really long break I'm usually away for three and a half weeks or so because I want my children to grow up learning the Swiss culture there's always an element of me thinking, hmm, I'm the only one doing this. Can I still grow our organization at the speed that I want it to grow? But the one thing I've learned is that when you do that, one, you come back, and I hope my team would agree, you come back with so much more conviction and clarity of what needs to do. There's just something that happens in the back of your brain. Absolutely. And the other thing is, if you can go away for three weeks and nobody dies, or to be fair, in my job, nobody dies anyways, <laughs> but nothing major happens. No, my neighbor. That Yeah. So if nothing major happens, that means that your team are of the really good caliber, that you can trust them. And that's an excellent learning as well. Because if you are a leader and you can't leave for three weeks at a time, then I think, you know, it's probably... You've got the wrong um, people doing the jobs, yeah. their jobs, because yeah, exactly. you know, where is their freedom? Where is their opportunity to lead and to be inspirational and entrepreneurial if you're there constantly watching over their shoulder? Everything you said, I'd like to say you said it a lot better than I would. Mm, I'm not sure. And you're obviously building the business. And you have a real, you have, I guess, a bit of a, you have the history of, what did you say, 125 years, but also you can shape things from the start. How do you make it easier for parents in your organization to progress their careers? So obviously, you're the CEO, you're a parent, very engaged with your children. But how do you make it easier for other people to have the same trajectories? The other side of that wall is a factory with, you know, 90 people that work on machines and build things. And, you know, I think probably... The business was neat. Part of what we've tried to do with restarting the business was look at the culture in the business. So I think factories are, you know, traditionally and historically always the last places to adapt this sort of encompassing culture. It's always about piecemeal, piece part, how many pieces are being made per hour. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to disengage from this objective measure of success in terms of piece parts yes we're a business yes we of course we've got bottom line revenue the other measures we look at are employee retentions how many employees are engaging with us on a social level so from a parent perspective we've looked at our remuneration package during maternity we've made it better we've looked at what we're doing from a pension contribution perspective we've made it better but flexible working is a huge thing so we used to be five days in the office. We're a factory. Everyone, you've got to be here to be working. We've managed to set up processes and practices that allow people to be from home either one or two days a week, depending on 
their role and responsibility. Now, that's such a big thing for parents because it allows them either to pick children up, drop children off late, have children at home with them. You know, so we've got parents that we know that are working hard, but they've got their three-year-old at home, so they're not in nursery. So the actual cost saving to them is you know twenty percent of a pay rise. Medical appointments, you know, if it's an IVF appointment, if it's a scan, you know, we pay for the day off as well. We're not asking you to take holiday. So, and we're constantly involving, you know, we're constantly listening to our our staff, you know, not every solution fits all. So we've got different solutions in place for different parents. Mm. And I think that's a legal right, isn't it? I'm not a lawyer or all over this and things change all the time, but having your appointments is probably the... I think that's a right. I don't know if they have to be paid, but but you having your scans off absolutely, but having them paid off and pay time off and paying for the day rather than paying for a couple of hours, you know. So just extending things. You know, so I'm not suggesting that we've changed the world with what we're doing. It's micro movement. So listening to people is the biggest thing because what's right for you might not be what's right for me. So if somebody says actually my husband or my wife finishes work at three, but if I could finish at three or if I could finish at five, can I do, you know, so we've got four shift patterns in the business. You know, we have only ever had one before and they're basically people can, as long as we've got enough notice, people can choose their shift pattern. So on school holidays, they can swap to a different shift that allows them to start later so they get them all. And basically it's almost having these individual options for parents about what's right for them. And as long as it works, you know, and you trust your employees, it's a big thing about trust. You have to trust them and you have to trust that they're going to work. And our staff retention is, we moved factories, we moved eight miles down the road last year. Our staff retention was 99%. We lost one member of staff by moving factories. Hugely disruptive. And the way we done that was sitting down with every single one of them and understanding what the increased cost is going to be, the increased travel time. So for some people, it was going to cost no more, but it was going to take an hour longer. Okay, well, let's work that hour in rather give you a pay rise that compensates you for that hour extra time or we'll give you an hour off during the week and you can finish an hour earlier because we want you to stay. You're an important part of the journey that we've been on. Whereas other people, it was like, it's going to cost me £1,500 a year more. Okay, well, let's see what we can do around making a contribution towards the pay. Someone had moved from being on a tube line to not being on a tube line. So we bought him an electric bike. So everything you do could be micro tailored towards the individual. And I think that's how you try to, I'm not suggesting we're there yet, you try to achieve a culture of all encompassing people, you know, whether it's about parents in the workplace or people looking after elderly relatives, whatever it is, people have got individual needs. And you want to create an open culture where people can come and talk to you. So we have an open door policy. So if I'm not in a meeting or talking to on podcasts or, or, or do, you can come and talk to me. If my door's open, you can come in. I had someone come in today and said, we've run out of toilet roll. It's not really my job, but we'll go and buy some toilet roll. We'll sort that out for you. That's not a problem. So I think that's, you know, it's all about culture and about listening to people's individual problems and trying to tackle them together. Mm. And you personally probably can't speak to 100 people. But I'm interested in how did you practically make it work to have those individual conversations, to develop those shift patterns? Is the secret just to hire a really good HR director or what's the secret? I actually, on this occasion, because it was such a big thing, moving a factory was such a big thing. We did, I individually consulted with all, all 100 people. But you're right, you can't speak to every 100 people every day, you know. But you have to set the tone and the pace and the culture at the top for your leadership team, who then for your other directors. So yeah, my operations director, my commercial director, we sit in SMT every week. And the first thing we say in our management meeting is job titles are off the table. So for that two hours a week, I don't care if you're the MD or you're the commercial director, we talk at a level. So it isn't me leading the meeting. It is a collaborative meeting because I'm very conscious that I'm a de facto MD. I'm here because I bought a business, not because I was re- recruited into the role. And I'm the youngest person in the room at my SMT. They're all a year to 
10 years older than me. So they've got more experience than me. So they've got a value to add. And there's no point in me having nodding dogs just agreeing with everything I say. And I don't want a passive leadership team. I almost want conflict at times. I want a debate. I want a healthy debate because I will be wrong a lot of the time. But one thing that we're all universally agreed on is the culture we want for the business and how we want people to come to work and how we want them to feel by coming to work on a Monday morning. And in order for them to buy into the culture, the whole workforce have got to buy into it. So if we all buy into it, they can go and deliver the same message. I'm confident that if that toilet roll conversation or a conversation about going for a scan or a medical appointment or a bereavement had happened with me, my operations director, my commercial director, my HR director, the answer would have been the same because it's consistent throughout. So that's, I guess, how we tackle it is creating consistency across all of the leaders. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. We're coming towards the end of our podcast. And I usually ask for one small thing that people do and that people could experiment with following the podcast. But I'm actually going to turn it around and I'm going to ask you, thinking about where you are going next with your career, with your business, what are the two or three very small things that you will do this week in order to make sure that you have traction towards that continued growth and impact? alongside of being being a father and a family person so this is a pure coincidence but tonight me and my wife are booking holiday so we are going to take the children away in the february half term so we're going to sit down tonight after dinner and after the children have been to bed and definitively decide where we're going and we will get that holiday in a diary because that will get us both highly motivated and excited and you know make sure that we're working for a reason From a work perspective, we want to bring in some apprentices. So I spoke to you before about people coming back that have been here 20, 30 years, and that's great. But by saying that, you know, you can tell they're in their 50s or even in their 60s. What we want to do is we want to get some young people into the business and we want to create the next generation of people that love our industry. So we've got a vision. It's a bit of a big vision and it's about trying to save the high street, save retail, you know, this online shopping thing. But we really buy into creative design, making retail really exciting, really invigorating. And to do that, we need to get some young people into the business, some some apprentices, some school leavers, and get them really excited for this industry as well. So we're on this sort of hunt for amazing apprentices at the moment, people that want to come in and, you know, either be model makers or, or prototype engineers or CAD designers or junior accountants. I don't know, across the board, we want to increase our headcount with really good, enthusiastic young people. Wonderful. So if anyone listening knows of someone who fits that profile, Please, it sounds like they should yeah. reach out to you. And um, where can people find out more about you, about your organization? So I am overly aggressive on LinkedIn and I post almost every day. So my name is Daniel Astorita, A-S-T-A-R-I-T-A. You'll find me on LinkedIn. There's not many Astoritas on there. Please connect. I will talk to anybody. So anyone drops me a message, they will always get a reply. My business is Kesler's London. So it's www.keslers.com. And yeah, email address is daniel.asteritakkeslers.com. And I will always reply to you because I love talking to people. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. And a special thank you to all of those of you who have connected with me on LinkedIn in the last few weeks. I really, really love hearing from listeners and hearing how you enjoyed the show. So it means a lot. Thank you so much. If you would like to be in touch in real life, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. It is such a fantastic community of working parents supporting each other to find a way to 
get careers where you can make a big difference in senior roles, but also do that unapologetically in a way that works for us. And if you want to apply, then the deadline is 20th of March. You can download the brochure for the program on leadersplus.org. Podcasting is also quite a male-dominated environment. If you look at the top charting podcasts, especially outside of the kids and family space, very often it's all led by men. I can't remember the numbers, but it is very male-dominated. Just take a look at the charts. And interestingly enough, more females than males listen to podcasts. So another unequal space. And thank you for supporting this podcast by listening to it. But if you want to help us, I guess, have more influence in the space, then please do help by sharing it with your friends and by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much to all of those of you who've done that already. Have a wonderful week.